BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. It was early 1965, and Jerry Brown probably should have been studying. Study for the bar exam is not very exciting. Brown had already flunked the California bar exam once, and he was holed up in a room on the second floor of his parents' home, studying for it again. It's drudgery. It's not interesting. When Jerry Brown doesn't find something interesting, he searches for something that is. That summer, he found it on the second floor of the governor's mansion in Sacramento, eavesdropping on his father, Governor Edmund G. Pat Brown, one of the founding fathers of modern California. When you were studying for the bar uh, at the mansion, did you get to see your, you know, your father working more closely than you had? A little bit. What, what well, I mean, there were dinners, there were conversations. I honestly don't know how to have a discourse with you. And there was 26-year-old Jerry Brown, listening in. And that was very exciting, and there was the famous meeting with Jess Unruh. Jess Unruh, also known as Big Daddy Unruh, was the Speaker of the State Assembly and another giant in California politics. Unruh was the ultimate power politician. He racked up favors and whipped members into line. And on this day, in 1965, Unruh told Pat Brown he wanted to run for governor when Brown's second term was up. You described it, I think, as an argument with Jess. Well, it was just... Talking, I mean, Unruh wanted to run for governor, and my father said no, the party needed him. Pat Brown didn't want Unruh to run because he was eyeing a third term. And these are two powerful men, obviously, going head to head. Right. Well, they were just by themselves sitting there on the first floor. They were arguing about who's going to run for governor. And in that moment, Brown remembers having something akin to a calling. My interest, it was so spontaneously stimulated. And that interested me just intellectually, but it had a certain emotive um, feel to it. So I decided right then and there, I think I like politics and I think I'll find a way to run for governor. Brown's political calling occurred in the halls of power. I mean, he was literally in the hallway of the governor's mansion, eavesdropping on a conversation between two of the most powerful politicians in California. 
But it was the mid-60s, and an anti-establishment sentiment was already growing in America. Brown could see that his path to the governor's office would not come from inside the halls of power. This is The Political Mind of Jerry Brown, and on this episode, the heir to California's political dynasty figures out how to run as an outsider. I have a political mind. How clearly do you see? How, how good is your eye? Get, get the ins out and to get the outs in. What, what wouldn't happen? But for me, but for, but for me, I reserve the right to think for myself. Right to think for myself. You're listening to The Political Mind of Jerry Brown. I'm Scott Schaefer, senior editor of KQED's Politics and Government Desk. So here's a spoiler alert. About 10 years after that moment in the stairwell, Jerry Brown did capture the governor's office, and he was the youngest person to do it in more than a century. And he did it by running as an outsider. It wasn't the obvious choice. Times were changing, but the old guard still had a firm grip on power. It could be argued that the obvious choice would have been to run as an insider. So how did Jerry Brown know? Well, in the dozens of hours I spent talking with Brown about his life and career, he often boiled politics down to one simple dynamic, in versus out. When you're an out, out of elected office, your game plan is to get the ins out and to get the outs in. That, however you want to state it, thus it ever is. If you look at my father's got a campaign poster that I have uh, running for DA, I think it was 1939. It says, new incompetent. It's new, shiny new object. That's very important, whether it's president or dog catcher. Think of it as a football game. It's the ins versus the outs. They get different flags. They cheer for different plays. So obviously, when you run, you don't say everything's wonderful. When you're running against an incumbent, you say, time for a change. Jerry Brown first encountered the idea of politics as a game between the ins and the outs pretty early on. It came after his father was elected district attorney of San Francisco in 1943. I remember the swearing in. We sat on the steps uh, inside the, on the rotunda, and Mayor Lapham was being sworn in and my father as well. Five-year-old Jerry noticed that in with the new also meant out with the old. I have a clear memory of that because I asked my father whether Matt Brady, the five-term incumbent that was that lost, would he be sworn out as my father would be sworn in? The answer, of course, was no. In the game of politics, unlike sports, only the winners get to stay on the field. But it wasn't his father who taught Jerry about the ins and the outs. It was Ronald Reagan. It's the actor against the old pro. The actor Republican Ronald Reagan against the incumbent governor Edmund Pat Brown. The year was 1966. Pat Brown had already presided over eight years of progressive governance and was running for a third term. The race in the West that has captured complete national attention is the gubernatorial contest in the state of California. Going into that election, did you think your dad could win or would win? No, I didn't think he could win. He had a more literal belief in the Democratic agenda, as it were. My father called it responsible liberalism. 
responsible liberalism. That was the idea Pat Brown ran on in his first campaign for governor. Government for him was a good word. Pat Brown was instrumental in the creation of California's higher education system, known as the Master Plan. He also led the construction of the system that moved water from north to south. And it's freeways. While we've been building this great big state of California, where was my opponent? Well, responsible liberalism, it didn't work in 1966. They didn't want liberalism, and they didn't want to take responsibility for all these things that my father thought were important. You know, the other day the governor was complaining. He said that while he's been building California all by himself, <laughs> he said, what's my opponent been doing? That's me. He said he's been on television and in the movies, and that's true. I've been earning a living. <laughs> if Brown preached government is a force of good, Reagan's message was government is the problem. And it makes you wonder if he doesn't really know that all that money he's been kicking around for the last eight years came from people like you and me who've been earning a living. The gubernatorial race that year was also happening against the backdrop of a cultural upheaval in America. Six days of rioting in a Negro section of Los Angeles left behind... The fight for civil rights was hitting a fever pitch, and riots were breaking out in cities across the country. And students on college campuses were finding their political voice. Student rallies at the University of California at Berkeley over the past... And it was all playing out on the nightly news. When you're the incumbent, that's bad news. So when you're the change man... Like Ronald Reagan, it's good news. In his playbook, building colleges and universities, the big water plan, none of that was his top priority. So what was? Getting things back on track when things worked in California. That was the Reagan idea for governor. It was, I think, the Reagan idea for president. Election night, 1966. Mr. Reagan's victory by nearly a million votes was the most spectacular in the nation. A study of how it happened, as seen by our KRON cameras, may tell us much about the rapidly changing mood of America. That was the mood. These are moods. And he was able to flow with those beliefs and make his mark in that context. And other people, for whatever reason, don't pick up on that uh, contemporary belief system. In the case of Pat Brown, you could argue that after eight years in office, he'd become too much of an insider, out of touch, old news. As Jerry Brown embarked on his political career, it was a cautionary tale he made sure to remember. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. After his father's loss in 1966, Jerry Brown moved to Los Angeles and soon looked to start his own political career. As he searched for a way to remake himself as an outsider, he also looked for a way to leverage his most valuable insider advantage, his name, Edmund G. Brown, Jr. 
I was very conscious of the fact that I had the same name as my father. Without that, it was nothing. And I didn't mind that. And I've, my whole life, I've benefited from the fact of my father's achievements. No question about it. Brown knew that he couldn't start by running for governor. He needed to aim a little lower to get his feet wet. At one point, I thought about running for Congress. Brown looked into the district south of L.A., near Long Beach, but found out his father had done badly there in the last election. And based on that, I decided not to run. In fact, it was almost by accident that Brown stumbled across his very first political stepping stone, the Los Angeles Community College District Board of Trustees. I don't know, I was walking out of a meeting. We had some meeting. But anyway, I met this guy, and he shook my hand. I said, what are you shaking my hand for? He said, well, I'm running for office. I said, what are you running for? I'm running for the Community College Board of Trustees. I said, what, what the hell is that? So, well, it's this new board they got in L.A. Hmm, pretty interesting. And when Jerry Brown finds something interesting... I said, hey, that's what I'm going to do. So I did it. It's just that simple. Beating out a field of 132 other unknown candidates at age 30 is pretty simple. When you have a name voters know and respect, even if it is your father's name. And Pat Brown's list of donors didn't hurt either. Jerry Brown tapped the donors on that list for contributions. And when he did... I saw my father's campaign treasurer fill out my campaign report for Junior College Board. If you look at a campaign report today, you'd see the donor's complete name, like Joe Smith, the employer, say Bank of America, and how much they gave. But back then? Instead of using names, he scrambled them all and used initials, like J. Smith. In fact, some of them would just write them like names in a circle. In other words, the information was basically useless. And so I thought, well, that doesn't seem right to me. That's when I started investigating it, and that's how I got on to that question. So Brown put his law degree to work and hit the library. Go to the codes of California, and there's uh, two volumes on election code. You take out the index, and you look through it. The campaign finance laws required candidates to report their donations. The laws were written in the 1890s, but by the late 1960s, politicians weren't really following them. I mean, it couldn't be any clearer. It says, report the donation. But they didn't report the donation in any sense of the word that made sense. It seemed like an obvious violation of the law. Jerry Brown had discovered the way to remake himself as a political outsider. He would take on the issue of money and politics to wage an attack on the political establishment. With this new playbook, in 1970, after less than a year on the community college board, Brown decided to run for California Secretary of State. That's the guy in charge of elections. One of the issues that I see central to the Secretary of State's office is the influence of lobbyists in Sacramento. Brown demanded that politicians in Sacramento be more transparent about the flow of money into politics. Not only on the day-to-day uh, -day operation where they're spending a million two hundred thousand dollars a year, but also in campaign contributions. I had my eye on the Secretary of State for a long time. It was a unique opportunity, and because the office had been essentially in the hands of two people since 1913, Frank Jordan and his father, there's a lot of things not done. Talk about insiders. Among the things not done? Enforcing those campaign finance rules. Running for a statewide office would take a team, but Brown looked far beyond the circle of his father's advisors. 
He called me and I agreed to come down to Los Angeles for an interview. Dan Lowenstein was a member of Brown's early team. He eventually wrote the law that reformed California's campaign finance rules. But in 1970, he was a 27-year-old newcomer to politics. We decided that we'd meet in the gift shop by the book stand. So I went down there and I was waiting for just a couple of minutes and then this uh, kid comes along with a high-pitched voice and says, are you Dan Lowenstein? I said, yeah, you work for Jerry Brown? He said, no, I am Jerry Brown. <laughs> Lowenstein fit the profile of Brown's team back then. He was young and demanded change to the business-as-usual culture in Sacramento, especially when it came to money in politics. What was just manifestly evident to anybody who wanted to look at it in Sacramento was when you went to restaurants and bars, legislators hung out in. You know, there were lobbyists there, and the legislators generally never paid for anything. You know, they, their meals were paid for, their drinks were paid for. Uh, one heard stories about poker games in which if the legislator won, he kept the money, and if the lobbyist won, he didn't. And when you have that kind of a situation, the average taxpayer is not going to get a square deal. That's Jerry Brown stumping for office in 1970. The special interests are, are going to get favored treatment. That's just the way it is. And I think this is the thing people ought to be talking about. Jerry Brown's message resonated with voters, and he won in a landslide. And on election night in 1970, as Ronald Reagan rolled to a second term as governor, Brown was the only Democrat to win statewide office. After the election, Brown steered clear of Sacramento. He pretty much stayed in Los Angeles and set up an office in Century City. Brown had always considered the Secretary of State position as a launching pad to the governor's office. And so he needed to keep his signature issue, getting money out of politics, in front of the voters for another four years. What possibilities did you see? Either as a candidate, but then, you know, as you go. Well, I saw the possibilities of enforcing the campaign law. Now, that already was a breakthrough thought. Because while the law required candidates to file campaign finance records with the Secretary of State, the law wasn't clear on whether the Secretary of State actually had the power to enforce the law. That question had never been raised since the beginning of the law. And so Jerry Brown raised it. What I proposed to do was to have the Secretary of State sued and making candidates uh, report their contributions. And Brown threatened to ban candidates from running if they didn't comply. I came in aggressively in this political reformism, which is not congenial to the long-term incumbents. I mean, essentially, you made the Secretary of State's office a combatant with politicians. Right. So how did that go over? Well, it didn't go over well with politicians. But we definitely made news. The news didn't go over too well in Sacramento, where lawmakers cut off funding for Jerry Brown's Century City office. And they tried to stop me. They had a big meeting, Willie Brown, and they all came in and they were, you know, quite uh, exercised about the whole thing. And how did you feel about that? Well, it's unpleasant. And I was so much younger than everybody else. And they knew a lot. And they knew the ways of the legislature, ways that I had not been part of or familiar with. Brown was fighting a lot of political battles in Sacramento, and he was winning the war. Voters came to see Brown as an outsider shining a light on the influence of money in Sacramento. The table was set. Today, I'm announcing my candidacy for the Democratic nomination for governor. It's a decision that I've arrived at after many months of reflection. It was January of 1974, and Brown made the announcement sitting in his childhood home in San Francisco. 
all of the Brown family members except for Brown Sr. were here. When he decided to run for governor, there was a lot of conversation around the table, particularly for my father, who said, you've only been Secretary of State four years. That's Kathleen Brown, Jerry's younger sister. You're running against these experienced politicians. Among the contenders in the Democratic primary that year were Bob Moretti, the Speaker of the State Assembly, and Joe Alioto, two very familiar names. Alioto had scrapped his way up the rough-and-tumble politics of San Francisco to become mayor. Jerry Brown's father considered him a giant. Between them, Alioto and Moretti had decades of political experience. Jerry Brown had just five. I think my father thought it was too soon, and Jerry clearly didn't. How high is the Watergate, mama? In 1974, voters were growing increasingly cynical of career politicians. How high is the Watergate, Papa? She said it's two feet high and rising. Watergate, the investigation into President Nixon's role and the cover-up of a break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters was in its second year. In the Swiss banks, the money stashed. 18 minutes of tapes of slash. As Secretary of State, Brown made news by suing lawmakers who didn't follow the campaign finance laws. But as Brown says, the news rots fast. And so, in his bid for the Democratic nomination for governor, Brown grabbed the spotlight by putting Proposition 9 on the ballot. In this year of Watergate, the tough campaign rules and reforms of Proposition 9 probably have their best chance with the voters. Prop 9 was a comprehensive package of political reforms. It put strict limits on lobbyists and required politicians to disclose their campaign donations. Brown campaigned on Prop 9, which appeared on the same ballot as the Democratic primary for governor. I think 9 is important. Here's Brown making the case for Prop 9 in 1974 on the campaign trail. I think it is anti-corruption, anti-big business, and the influences that have gone on in Sacramento. And I think it's a measure that is of importance to the people. And in this age of Watergate, uh, we can do no less than pass that proposition. We were kind of lucky that Watergate came around. So what was sort of a, a very secondary issue became a more important issue. Tom Quinn was Jerry Brown's campaign manager in that first run for governor. The Watergate impeachment hearings had begun, and voters were in the mood for political reform. We are beginning these hearings today in an atmosphere of utmost gravity. With Proposition 9, Brown hoped to capture the reform mantle to beat his opponents in the primary. The problem? His opponents backed the ballot measure, too. Well, I think they hated it. But in the primary, both Bob Moretti, who was Assembly Speaker, was running in the primary against Jerry, and Joe Aliotto, who was mayor of San Francisco, also running. They felt the need to endorse it, because politically, to be in the sight of the angels. Yet the opposition to the initiative is not tame, and labor is doing all in its power to defeat the measure. Unions believe Prop 9 would cripple their influence at the state capitol by restricting lobbying. And the AFL-CIO called on the frontrunners in the Democratic primaries, Moretti, Alioto, and Brown, to drop their support of Prop 9. Head of the AFL-CIO here in California had endorsed uh, Jerry and Alioto and Moretti. But he then told us all that they were going to withdraw the endorsement unless we would change our position on Prop 9. Like now, labor flexed a lot of political muscle back then. They had lots of money and an army of members who could campaign for candidates. But Brown hadn't just campaigned on Prop 9, he spearheaded the effort to put the measure on the ballot. There's no way he could back down. 
Moretti and all the other did. The decision last night by the California AFL-CIO Executive Council to withdraw the endorsements of Jerry Brown and Jerry Waldy shows the political muscle that labor is trying to use. The loss of that endorsement turned out to be a blessing in disguise for Brown. He was again able to claim the mantle of political reformer. Brown's campaign manager and media guru, Tom Quinn, got to work on a TV spot to drive the point home to voters. The commercial started with this. They had sort of campaign posters of Prop 9, these three candidates supported, and Labor's chief lobbyist threatened to withdraw the endorsement unless they changed their position. And one of the campaign posters, Moretti or Aliotto, drops out with a big crashing sound. Then the other one. On primary night, Brown, the relative newcomer, beat the old veterans, Aliotto and Moretti, by nearly 20 points. Voters approved Proposition 9, creating the Fair Political Practices Commission, which governs campaign law in California to this day. But as the Democratic Party's nominee, Brown was no longer an outsider. And with the passage of Prop 9... It was a challenge. Yes, Brown got California voters to pass the strictest campaign finance reforms in the nation. But in the general election, voters wanted to know... What else are you going to do? And Brown didn't have another signature issue that he could use to run as an outsider. To make matters worse, the contrast between Brown and his November opponent, Houston Flournoy, wasn't really that stark. Flournoy was a moderate Republican who'd taken a lot of progressive positions. I kind of found it difficult to find what my real points were going to be. It almost felt like I was running out of things to talk about. After the summer primary, Brown had a 14-point lead over Flournoy. That narrowed to 11 by October and 8 points just days before the election. Brown's strategy? Run out the clock. So do I want to call attention to the opponent? I mean, even the Warriors, when they're ahead, do they keep shooting like if they were behind? No. Right? And does any candidate? I don't think so. Brown says he had a lot of issues he could have campaigned on, like letting farm workers unionize. Strikes at harvest time are giving public employees the right to bargain, which would imply the right to strike, were not winner topics. But these weren't bite-sized issues, and they weren't easily understood or made for TV, and they weren't vote-getters either. You know, you could go into the a debate or something and say, look, I stand here and I tell you if I'm governor, we're going to have strikes from Stockton to El Centro at the height of harvest, and that fruit's going to rot unless Cesar Chavez is an equal bargaining agent with the farmers of California. You could say that, right? But you'd be a damn fool. So Jerry Brown stayed silent, and Flournoy pounced. His idea that somehow we ought to all take a vacation until uh, Labor Day or something is kind of a silly idea from my point of view. A week before, well, we, we've gone down the polls. Well, we're still 10 points ahead. And a couple of days later, now we're seven points ahead. So that was the, and then the day before the campaign, we were like three points ahead, or even. The Democrats, favoring their greatest triumph in a decade, sparked mainly by the election of a host of new governors, including Hugh Carey of New York, Edmund Brown of California. Brown defeated Flournoy by less than three points. It was the closest California gubernatorial election in half a century. Kathleen Brown remembers their dad being proud of Jerry's victory and surprised that he was able to knock off so many insiders along the way. 
He killed all of the people who my father held in very high regard for their service. Brown was just 36 years old, but he'd found a way to skip up the political ladder by challenging the old guard of politicians at every rung. It reminds me a lot of the generational change that we have today, that we're seeing these younger politicians who are stepping out and saying it's our turn in their 30s, and that's very similar to what Jerry did, and it's an inflection point in, in history. Coming up on The Political Mind of Jerry Brown, a new spirit arrives in the governor's office. I was looking for things that would not have happened but for my being there. But what were those? Brown takes office in 1975, riding a post-Watergate wave of reform. I was very aware of the skepticism and disdain for politicians, and I didn't want to feed that. We'll take you back to Brown's first year in office when late nights produced historic achievements. I don't think any governor before or since has spent the amount of time that I spent on that bill. And some ruffled feathers in the office. The hours were horrendous. Jerry Brown was very undisciplined. At the height of his popularity in California, can Brown take his ideas to the national stage? He was young, he was fresh, he was new, new and free of other, shall we say, past uh, perceptions of how things should be. I'm Scott Schaefer, and that's next on The Political Mind of Jerry Brown. The Political Mind of Jerry Brown is a production of KQED Public Radio. Guy Marzarati produced the show. Queen of Kim is our series editor. Katie McMurrin mixed the show, and Susie Racho did the scoring. Our music was composed by Daoud Anthony. KQED's leadership team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Jonathan Blakely, and Julie Kane. Special thanks to Martin Meeker and Todd Holmes at the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library. I'm Scott Schaefer. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.